When disasters hit, most people's first instinct is to get out and take cover. I'm Anna Huntsman, and this is State of Emergency. In this episode, you'll hear three stories of people seeking shelter. And in some cases, that shelter became home. First, News 21 reporter Sophie Grossroad takes us to New Orleans, where getting to safety seemed nearly impossible for one mother and her daughter. An entire ward of this city, the Ninth Ward, appears to be up to its rooftops in water. Uh, those people who ignored the evacuation orders or maybe for one reason or another didn't get them are simply going to have to wait and rescue themselves. When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, Jamie Cummings was in just about the last place you want to be, the hospital. Memorial Medical Center in Uptown New Orleans, colloquially known as Baptist Memorial. Jamie wasn't a patient there. Her mother, Sharon, was, admitted for dehydration. Jamie was only 14. They had never evacuated for a hurricane before. They didn't have a car or much money. Besides, it was New Orleans. Hurricanes come and go, and they're rarely all that bad. Here's Jamie. It started to rain. We went to sleep. Then we heard the winds hitting the windows. And so they were like, okay, everybody get in the hall. So we got in the hall. We we just heard, like, stuff breaking and stuff like that. So we just said, well, maybe it's, you know, the wind breaking windows or something. After that, the storm was literally over. A Category 5 hurricane. Over. Just like that. Then, the water started rising. At that point, my mom's nurses were really panicking. So they're coming in and out the room. They were over-medicating patients. Sharon was still pretty out of it, so Jamie took charge. A nurse came in to give her mother pills. Jamie refused to let her take them. She remembers hearing a nurse in the hallway say that patients were going to die anyways. They might as well speed it up. Memorial Hospital staff did later admit that some critical patients were given lethal doses of morphine when the evacuation descended into chaos. Jamie knew they had to get out. The hospital staff were separating patients and visitors, so Jamie and Sharon left on their own. My mama grabbed my hand. And we started walking. They gave us a cup of spaghetti and sent us on our way. Jamie remembers the water coming up to the top step of the hospital. A boat came to get them. It had a big fan on the back of it, and it was piloted by a man who had a gun. He warned them that he might have to return fire if people thought they were looters. Jamie was scared. They came to a pharmacy, Bright Aid or Walgreens. She doesn't remember. Jamie took some cookies and went outside with her mom. They were told to wait for buses. But as time went by, none came. And so my mom was like, girl, ain't no bus coming. We're going to sit out here and die. So we started walking. At this point, Sharon was really sick, vomiting the works. She didn't have any shoes. Jamie had a little red duffel bag with the clothes she had brought to the hospital. She put her cookies in it. They were heading down St. Charles Avenue towards the housing project where Jamie's uncle lived. Sharon was positive that her brother would still be there. You didn't really hear too much but people walking or people trying to get through it, um, but it was really quiet. The water started out ankle deep, but eventually came up to Jamie's waist. At one point, they stepped in a construction hole. It sucked them down like a drain. They both could have drowned if not for a man who was out siphoning gas for his generator. He pulled them out and told them he had seen a boat. 
he recruited two other men walking by with a garbage can to help them get down Washington Avenue. As they're pulling us up Washington Avenue, we pass by this graveyard, and that's when it got real. We start seeing stuff just floating, dead bodies floating. I literally saw a dead baby like float right by the boat. Jamie and her mother held hands and tried to keep their eyes on each other. Eventually, they reached the housing project. It was starting to get dark. A woman across the way asked who they were looking for. She said everyone in that building was gone. Sharon was hysterical. She was convinced this was the end. But for whatever reason, Jamie didn't feel the same. At this point, I still got my bag. I still got my cookies. They're a little damp. But for some reason, I just had a sense of calmness over me, like throughout the whole experience. After a little while, a man and a woman came by. They were pulling a king-sized headboard with all their stuff piled on top. Sharon asked if they knew Bob. That's her brother. They said yes. For the first time that evening, there was hope of some shelter. Bob wasn't gone. He was right inside. He was coming to get them. Eventually, my uncle came around that corner, and it was like I saw Jesus himself. I was like, oh my God, thank you. They spent five days in Bob's girlfriend's apartment, bathing with baby wipes, cooking on the gas stove, and listening to the portable radio. We was chilling, you know. I mean, we were kind of used to not having too much, so, you know, I mean... You do what you got to do to survive. And so that's what we did. We did have a comical moment. Um, <laughs> I know a, a lot of people remember that moment when Ray Nagin um, was on the radio, who was the mayor at the time, cursing everybody out. All kind of, excuse my French, everybody in America, but I am pissed. And we were listening to it and we were just laughing hysterically because at that point we like yes like send help what are y'all doing we need the help you know so we just amening him cussing everybody out <laughs> after five days the coast guard officers circling in helicopters overhead called down to them it was time to go the water was really starting to stink but they had to wade through it one more time a helicopter picked them up from a park in the neighborhood six days after katrina hit they were finally leaving new orleans Jamie can still remember looking down at the drowned city below. I was just like, wow, this is some TV stuff. You know, like, you don't, I never thought this would happen. But honestly, I was happy because I was leaving. You know, I was just like, yes, you know, because this right here is, is, (laughs) I can't do this no more. All this water, I can't, I just can't do this, you know. And so I was happy to be leaving. That was Sophie Grossroad. Jamie and her mom were left behind after most of the city had already fled. But what happens when an entire small town evacuates? And where do you go when that community is destroyed? News 21 reporter Brianna Castagnon takes us to paradise. On November 8, 2018, the deadliest and most destructive fire in California history, the campfire, would force thousands to evacuate. I saw in the news that a fire had started in Pulga. I didn't think it would reach us. I mean, that's 40 miles away. That's David Ramey. He lived in paradise for 30 years. It started out like 6 in the morning. By 9.30, 10 o'clock, it was, it was like nighttime. And that's 9.30, 10 o'clock a.m. in the morning. You would expect to look up and see stars. That's how dark it was. At that point, David and his son decided they needed to get out but they couldn't reach the main road. 
there was so much traffic. There was no going south into paradise. It was just pandemonium. I mean, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do. The fire spread so quickly to paradise, a lot of people evacuated in a hurry. Many left their lives behind in the fire. Shalene and Billy Mars each took an extra pair of jeans, but wished they grabbed more. I didn't know what to do, or hardly, I guess. Put your clothes on first, Shirlene. I told her, I said, don't worry about it, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, didn't happen. When Shirlene and Billy got in their car, they drove straight into chaos. Then I saw somebody that got over in another lane, uh, the middle lane, you know, for left-hand turns, and I thought, well, that's against the law. And then I figured it out, and I thought, oh, <laughs> there are no laws now. People were being totally crazy, cutting each other off, freaking out. Just everywhere you look, and next thing you know, all of a sudden there's fire right beside us. And I was like, oh my God, this isn't good. And then it took probably two hours to get like a mile. That's Rita Miller. When she evacuated, she wasn't just worried about herself. She was trying to get to her parents who were stranded in their trailer park. Rita's mom was confined to a wheelchair. I just started walking with my dog. Next thing you know, it's like more things are exploding everywhere. You can see fire. It's just, just patchy all over the place. And I'm like, well, at least I can get to my parents. They're only like two miles from maybe at the most from where I was standing, right? I walked for about, I guess I'd say about half a mile. And this lady was like, are you okay? Can you want to get in my car? And I was like, no, I don't want to get in your car. Your car is not moving. <laughs> I got to go save my mom and dad. I can't get in your car. The woman decided to help Rita get to her parents. After an hour, they finally reached the trailer park. Sure enough, they're the only people there. They're waiting for me. Rita helped her mother with her medical equipment and got her into the woman's car to get back on Skyway Road. It's two lanes in and two lanes out, the only main road in and out of Paradise. And when they got there... There's just fire everywhere. It's all around us. First, you're in, like, denial, like, oh, this is something. They're going to put this out. This isn't really happening. And then once you started to see, like, a fires for real or this close to us, then you're like, okay, wait a minute. My family, my friends, everything is here. Oh, my God, I didn't grab anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? I left our cats. We indeed lost everything. Everybody pretty much I know lost everything. Rita took shelter at her former church. She stayed there for about a month until officials sent her to the fairgrounds in Chico. This is where a lot of families and residents were sent. Another survivor, Timothy Lyons, ended up there too. It totally sucked. It was terrible. So they ended up moving all the tent people into what's called the pavilion. And we lived there two or three weeks. Then they moved us into men and women's dorms and family dorms after that. It, it was just one hell of an ordeal. See, we're not homeless. We're houseless. That's what I keep trying to tell people. It's by none of our accord that we lost our homes, we lost our cars, we lost our animals, we lost our livelihood. It's not we are homeless or houseless. There's a big difference, a huge difference. Thousands of evacuees were dispersed to different areas, left to figure out what their next steps would be in finding a permanent home. Some of these survivors are temporarily living in Chico, staying in a commercial backlot of trailers off Alamo Street right behind Evan LeVang's home. When it came time to make a decision if we were going to open up our property to fire refugees, at first I was against it. I just felt that it was going to create more problems than it would solve for us. We just wanted to just get on with our lives. But I kept going back to that feeling I had before the campfire was under control and before we knew that they were going to stop it at the highway. 
about a couple miles from here. And that feeling of dread and, and despair, and I felt like we didn't have any other choice. Like, we had to do what we could to help. And it was just about one family at first, and now we've got a colony of people that are, are living in our back lot. Now retired Jing Cully helps manage the lot. He's Evan's neighbor. And in his free time, he volunteers at shelters, including the fairgrounds. That's where he met everyone who now lives in this community, what he calls Alive on Alamo. And they said, I'll tell you what, Gene, you design it, you get the contractor, you get the permits, whoever it takes to do it right, and we'll pay for it. And that's how the site started. Rita Miller, Timothy Lyons, David Ramey, the Mars, they all ended up here. We can take a shower, <laughs> use the water, wash our dishes. We've been here like two and a half weeks, I think, and it's way better. Yeah, this is a safe place for me right now, but all my friends, family are dispersed. So it's going to take a while to track them down and get in contact. And we will regroup somewhere in California, but not up here. You know, I'm not you know, worried about my future as much as I am worried about other people's futures because they don't have the same things that I have or could attain or could get, you know. Yeah, it's just a lot of, it's a lot of weight on people's shoulders, and it sucks, it does. I don't want to go back, but my youngest son does. He wants to go back, he, he grew up there, that's where he was born. I go back there, I can't breathe. I think it's just from the stress, you know. It's harder for me to breathe there, it's heartbreaking. I raised three kids in that house, that's it. And it's just a pile, I got pictures of it. It's a pile of rubble. I'm 65 years old and I can't start over. I wish I was 30 because I'd just go get another job. I'd go back to work, but I can't. I'm just gonna have to make it work one way or another. The campfire destroyed towns. It burned homes. Skyway, the road used by so many to escape the fire, is now lined with 85 crosses to remember each person who didn't make it out. Those who survived continue to struggle. Some people are, may seem strong, the strongest person you know before the disaster, and they're the ones that struggle the most. Every evacuee you meet, I don't care who they are, I don't care how together they seem, there's anxiety. Rita fights her anxiety every day. It's still devastating, I can't even hardly go up there. Like, I think I've been home three times. I just cry. I don't cry the whole time anymore, but I get up there and I just cry. And when I leave, I cry because I was home, and I actually didn't really necessarily like Paradise all that much growing up, but now that it's gone, <laughs> it's only game changer, right? Now, we're not sure where we're going to go from here. We didn't want to be a problem. That's not like our plan, you know, and it's, it's, it's humbling and it's shameful. Fire's been gone for a long time, and now people are still suffering. Sooner or later, everybody wants to go back to the normal way it was before that, and that's just the way it is. Human nature. This lot is temporary for these survivors, but it's home right now. You know, home is basically a shelter. It's a place mostly where you sleep and eat. To get them back into something like that uh, with contentment and security, I think that's the ultimate goal. And maybe some good can come out of this, but that's only going to be if it, it's got to be way more than just, as they say, thoughts and prayers, or it can't have anything to do with pity or sorrow. It's got to do with a new commitment to community and a commitment to teamwork and generosity. 
that we're hoping comes out of this. That was Brianna Castagnon. Shelter can be temporary, or in the case of paradise survivors, become a permanent home. And sometimes you don't have a say in your search of shelter. Here's News 21 reporter Natalie Wattis. When a natural disaster is imminent, the decision to shelter in place or get out of town is one of the most important you can make. But sometimes the most vulnerable populations, like the elderly or the sick, don't get to make that decision on their own. Marie Farrington was one of the last medical evacuees to leave St. Thomas after Hurricane Irma hit the Virgin Islands. She refused to go. She says, Mike, I'm not leaving you. And I said, well, you're not leaving me, but you got to go. Because she decided she was not going. That day, the doctor said to her, you got to go or you're going to die. Marie had to leave because the resources on the island, like dialysis centers, were no longer operable. Without those centers, Marie wouldn't survive. My wife was a dialysis patient. All of the dialysis centers in disarray and disrepair, it was necessary to transport all of the dialysis patients. Even people that were in the hospital that had other issues had to be moved because there was no electricity. A lot of places didn't have running water. It was decided by the local government and the federal government, which is FEMA, that these patients had to be transported someplace else. And the closest place was Puerto Rico. So there was a major evacuation that took place, helicopters and alike, and everybody was sent to Puerto Rico. Marie also had a prosthetic leg, making it even more daunting to be in an unfamiliar place, where accommodations for people with disabilities weren't always a certainty. I tried to travel with her because of her disability. That was impossible. So she really had to suck it up and just do what she had to do. I know that she would have a rough time because, like I say, having... I mean, she had a prosthetic, but just moving around would be, would be difficult. No one knew where Marie would be sent next or how long she would be gone for, but they stayed in contact. My wife and I, we spoke just about every night. And the conditions in Puerto Rico were as best as could be. Um, women were on one side, men was on the next. And they really went to the extreme as far as making sure they gave them food that we're accustomed to, like chicken and rice and the Spanish kind of stuff. But their relief turned quickly into stress when they realized Hurricane Maria was headed straight for Puerto Rico. Not too long after that, we had Maria coming by and they were told where they were was in a floodplain area. So they had to evacuate hundreds of patients to the United States, mainly Florida. And they went to Florida, which was another experience. A lot of problems that we had was just not having proper communication. And that probably drives you more crazy than anything else. Going to Miami was a totally different story. And I I don't believe that they were prepared for these patients to come there because the plan was for them to stay in Puerto Rico. And so having to take thousands of people, and this wasn't just from the Virgin Islands, this was from places in the Caribbean. And the conditions were a lot different than in Puerto Rico. They were shuttled back and forth sometimes. Breakfast was not on time. And like I say, I I chalk it up for not being equipped and ready for that kind of stuff. I was upset about it. Luckily, Michael had family in Florida that were able to move Marie out of the shelter and into their home. Her niece called and said, listen, and which was very rare because we didn't have much communications, no cell phones, nothing. And she said, listen, Marie can come up to my house and stay with me. It was a breath of fresh air knowing that she would be with family. After months of displacement, a dialysis center opened in St. Thomas. Marie was going home. She actually came back on March, I think it was the 8th or the 9th. And it was a happy, happy occasion. She was glad to be home. 
And I think what, what her problem was, just like any other patient, was just missing your family. And as a matter of fact, that day her niece called me and says, listen, Meg, I got good news. I don't remember the place in Florida, but they actually approved her to come up and take tests so she could get a kidney. So it was like, hey, this was the biggest thing that happened to us. And we were in bed joking and laughing. And, and she wanted to eat uh, some chicken and rice from this place and bought it. We sat in bed, we were talking and making plans. And then she just, you know, I, she died on the bed in front of me, but she died happy. She just stretched out and she took her last breath and she was gone. For Michael, Marie is what made St. Thomas home as much as anything else. My wife Marie was always around me. She made me wait 10 years before she decided to get married. So we got married and we, we had a, a, a good life. Michael never left the Virgin Islands, but when asked what he would do the next time a hurricane passes through, he responded by saying that on an island, the decision to stay or leave isn't always a choice you get to make. And despite the risks of staying, there really is no place like home. I have been through four major storms. I've been through Hugo, Marilyn, and these last two. I don't, I try not to even call them by name because it's just so upsetting. People look at us and say, you live in paradise, but from this part of the month until September, everybody holds their breath. I don't want to be around for the next one. I've done four major storms and I really don't want to do this again. More than likely if it comes, I'll be stuck here. And I'll just try to help out as much as I can. Because this is our home, this is, these are our people, and we just got to work with each other. That was Natalie Wattis. This episode of State of Emergency was produced by Dustin Patar and me, Anna Huntsman. News 21 reporters Sophie Grosserode, Brianna Castagnon, Natalie Wattis, Mackenzie Pavisic, Ali Barton, Carly Henry, and Ariel Salk also contributed to this episode. State of Emergency is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. On the next episode, what happens when the storm passes? The storm is nothing compared to the paperwork. The paperwork is the monster, not the storm. The challenges and the triumphs along the road to recovery. 